Hey everyone, and welcome to the storm is coming. Uh, it is, uh, it's, I mean, obvious that we're living in some pretty challenging times and um, humanity is essentially at a crossroads. We're seeing the ongoing violence and police brutality uh, happening against the civilians and citizens uh, of, of the world, essentially. Uh, and a lot of people now are starting to ask, you know, where do we go from here? And essentially, they're asking that question because the current systems uh, that are in place now have uh, essentially failed us. Now, uh, it hasn't failed for the tiny group of uh, people that are uh, basically wealthy and extremely powerful. But uh, these systemic violences like, you know, police brutality and, uh, and uh, you know, homeless and poverty and all these other things that are caused by the current institutions in place need to be changed. Now we need to return back to our origins and I've been hearing this name a lot and it's really resonating with me and a, and a lot of other people. Uh, and when I say return back to our origins, I'm going to do the video about that particular place in time when North America was referred to as Turtle Island. <clears throat> All right, so I'm going to get into a few uh, definitions and explanations of what Turtle Island is. This is out of the Canadian Encyclopedia. And Turtle Island is the name of many Algonquian and Iroquoian speaking peoples, mainly in the northern eastern part of North America, used to, used to refer to the continent. So the entire continent of North America was called Turtle Island. In various indigenous origin stories, the turtle is said to support the world and as an icon of life itself. Turtle Island therefore speaks to various spiritual beliefs about creation, and for some, the turtle is a maker of identity, or sorry, is a marker of identity, culture, autonomy, and a deeply held respect for the environment. So we gotta get back to respecting the environment. See, that is a great way of explaining it. Respect the environment, because essentially, this is what we need to do. Okay, we can't respect the environment if we're pillaging and raping it, you know, in the name of capitalism and in the name of profits. And again, like I was saying, we got to get back to our, our, our origins and essentially Turtle Island. Okay, now pull up a map courtesy of Wikipedia. Essentially, this is Turtle Island. Okay, all of uh, North America, including, you know, Central and the Caribbean Islands. So at one point, this was, I mean, all of it was Turtle Island until the Europeans got here, and they basically pretty much divided us. Now, this sounds crazy, because it's a, it's a, it might be a new thing for you, but if you really look at it, these borders are nothing more but dividers. And I'm not saying, okay, you know, let's, uh, let's shoot for a global economy or, or a, a, a world order, no. I'm just saying, look at it at one point, how peaceful it was, okay? And it was such a strong community-based continent. And again, we need to get back to the community method. All right, so this is out of the deadly story. Um, and I'm going to only pick out a certain um, paragraph of it, certain part of this uh, uh, article. 
Uh, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing what this is, but um, it essentially means the longhouse. And this is what the longhouse, uh, the definition of a longhouse is. So the longhouse, confederacy, meaning people of the longhouse, is often described as one of the oldest participatory democracies on the earth. It is made up of five nations, Mohawk, Oninda, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca. The purpose of the Confederacy was to unite the nations to live peacefully. Each nation governed its own internal affairs and for matters relating to the Confederacy, representatives from each nation would meet in Grand Council. Before the before colonization, colonization, the Longhouse lived together in longhouses made from wood, bark, and animal hide used on a door for warmth. Longhouses were up to 200 feet, 60 meters in length, and 18 feet in width. These dwellings were windowless except for smoke holes set at 20 feet intervals in the roof to allow smoke to escape from the fires burning inside. Uh, being a Martialinian society, uh, whole extended families would live in the longhouses with individual rooms set aside for each family. Communal fires ran along the center of the longhouse. Now this was practiced during the Turtle Island times. So the, the emphasis and the focus was on community and participatory democracy. Okay, so this is, you know, a lot of people talk about the Iroquois Confederacy because it basically consisted of participatory democracy. So they asked all the, uh, I guess, all the natives to participate and they would gather in these longhouses and they would talk about uh, the futures. You know, they would talk about, I guess, how to save the environment or whatever issues uh, occurred or arised. <clears throat> all right, so I'm going to bring up... Um, now, this is a long article, so you have to excuse me on this, but this is essentially, uh, I just want to bring up the publication. Um, the Journal of Community Safety and Well-Being. We want to thank them for that. And we're going to pretty much bring up the colonial impacts and, pol and uh, policing. This is what the Europeans brought to Turtle Island. Indigenous Canadians were integral to early European trade networks that exploited exportable Canadian natural resources. They were also politically, economically, and socially marginalized during the settlement that accompanied these and later industries that significance of the land for indigenous people is now better understood as scholars have found that their oral traditions are story-based and linked to extra capably to landmarks and geographical areas. Therefore, physical landmarks become a significant part of the indigenous identity. Canadian conflicts such as the protracted siege by the Mohawk tribe near the Quebec town of Oka in summer of 1990 have largely defined the police community relationship in many regions. Ladner, a recognized expert on indigenous Canadian history, has noted that 
if the economic disparity between mainstream Canada and the Aboriginal communities is not resolved through settlement of the seven treaties in the next 20 years, it will not be pretty. Oka was nothing. The list of land-related conflicts between Indigenous and mainstream Canada goes on, but two particularly poignant classics that have been written on the subject are Campbell's Half-Breed, A Proud and Bitter Canadian Legacy, and Night Spirits, the story of the relocation of the Sanzi Denai by Busardi, and uh, I can't really pronounce these names here, but um, it continues on to say, in 2012, First Nation leaders from across Canada met in Ottawa to form a national plan to fight for the rights. Former Assembly of First Nations Grand Chief Ovid Mercredi stated, the option for us is very clear. We have to make our own laws and ignore Parliament. Mercredi said there is a little... Uh, there is little the, the, the country can do if First Nations peoples unite, stating Parliament can pass all the laws they want, they will just ignore them. They will try to enforce them, but who's going to do that? The RCMP? It seems that the unresolved treaty claims and land disputes will only worsen if they are not resolved. The police are often caught in the middle, mandated to enforce the laws while simultaneously striving to build trust and promote peace and community balance. Oka was a clear example of this and there have been many others. Over recent years, this effect of land disputes on policing relationships has been a topic of interest at the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police Policing with First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Peoples Community or Committee, on which I serve as a member. Corporations such as the rail, uh, railways are, in many cases, quickly seeking court injunctions, ordering the police to remove protesters from contested lands. Large amounts of revenue are at stake. In some cases, the police are reluctant to enforce orders where they know it might inflame a situation or damage relationships. While the English and French fought for control of Canadian trade routes, Canadian Indigenous people suffered the introduction of European illness, alcohol, and the politics of European contact. This is why many scholars speak in terms of pre- and post-contact. Canada's first laws authorized control by the Hudson Bay Company over, beer, uh, over uh, beaver pelt exportation uh, to Europe. Indigenous Canadians who prior to first European contact had lived traditionally as hunters and gatherers uh, were marginalized while Canada's natural resources were exported back to Europe. Some have argued that Canada's Indian Act of 1876 intended to integrate First Nations peoples into Europe settler culture. Certainly some of the more aggressive assimilation policies implemented through mandatory, church-run, and government-funded residential schools were designed to rid First Nation peoples of their languages and cultures and integrate them into European settler society. We now have a deeper understanding of the importance of land to Indigenous peoples' worldviews and how displacing them onto reserves has often disconnected them from nature and permanently damaged their sense of identity. Living conditions on the reserves has continually deteriorated. Canada's Department of Indian and Northern Affairs reported in 2006 that 50% of people on reserves were on social assistance and 90% were unemployed. Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, 2006. Many of Canada's reserves still do not have adequate electricity or safe drinking water. Many of these challenges can be linked back to the land and the effects of displacement, Beattie says. 
Often what is being contested and protested by the indigenous people is the neglect of culturally appropriate resource considerations. Incongruent concepts, conceptions of terms such as land rights and tenure and overall skepticism of the capitalistic underpinnings of modern society. In 2008, the national government formally apologized for the failed residential schools, Menzies. The apology acknowledged unsettled treaty rights through the redistribution of wealth. Canada and its government institutions, such as the, the police, may have a long way to go to overcome its past. The Royal Canadian Mountain Police were agents in Canada's settlement and were often required to act as uh, Toronto, uh, Toronto officers for the residential schools. The resulting community distrust of the police is a lasting legacy. In his report on the RCMP's part in the residential school system, Leboeuf uh, wrote that there is no mention of the RCMP role in the residential schools in existing literature or history books. However, the memory of per uh, perception among indigenous people links the RCMP with assisting Indian agents enforcing the Indian Act and the Family Allowance Act, enforcing the past system that controlled movements on and off of the reserves, and government bans that prohibited indigenous people from consuming liquor or holding dances and ceremonial gatherings. In 2004, the RCMP commissioner officially apologized for the involvement in the Indian residential school legacy. Of course, this is early history and police in every province has since had their own tensions with indigenous communities. Some examples include the 1995 protests at Ipperwash Provincial Park in Ontario when Dudley George was killed by a police officer, uh, the aforementioned 1990 Oka crisis in Quebec, the protracted and intractable land dispute in Caledonia, Ontario since 2006, the 1990 conviction of police officers in Saskatoon for conducting starlight tours that resulted in several deaths, and the list goes on across Canada. The resulting inquiries of, uh, over all these events have uh, produced many similar recommendations. For instance, Manitoba's Aboriginal Justice Inquiry that followed the shooting of J.G. Harper by a Winnipeg police officer in 1988 recommended increased consultation with Aboriginal communities in the areas of education, justice, law enforcement, the courts, and the prison system, and increased re recruitment um, of Indigenous people in policing. Despite numerous development and recruitment uh, programs in Manitoba and across Canada, Indigenous people are still generally underrepresented in policing. Establishing Rebuilding and maintaining trusting relationships with First Nations peoples is ongoing concern for Canada's law enforcement agencies. The principles of good policing that were originally set up by Sir Robert Peel when establishing London's first Metropolitan Police Force in 1829 are a doctrine for professional policing in the Western world that remains uh, uh, a opposite uh, to this day. These principles, if properly applied, can stand as a guide for police transformation and improved respect for traditional indigenous cultures. Principle number seven, commonly stated as the police are the people and the people are the police, highlights the role of the community in public safety. Peel's principles define the police as an extension of the public, not as a replacement of them. The idea that the police are one of many stakeholders and not solely responsible for crime reduction and public safety is an underpinning principle in the collaborative approaches to policing being undertaken across Canada. 
So we can see what uh, colonization has done to this, uh, not only Canada, but right across Turtle Island. And uh, again, you know, uh, the Europeans brought things like capitalism. Uh, Canada itself was a, a colony, and in some, some ways we're still a colony of the British Empire. And with the colonization, they brought in these... Um, these evasive systems like capitalism and like so-called representative, so-called democracy. I mean, uh, they even, I mean, th these institutions actually even took over our banking system. So yeah, we need to get back to Turtle Island. We need to get back to the community method. We need to read the Iroquois Confederacy where they talk about participatory democracy or decentralized democracy, these are the roots that we need to get back to. Respecting the environment and essentially respecting all people. So again, I'm with the indigenous people. I'm with those indigenous people who basically say they don't recognize Canada as a country. They don't recognize Canada, period. That they only recognize Turtle Island. And again, as I showed you in that math, in that map, Turtle Island was essentially the entire continent of North America. And there were no lines. There were no border lines. And then, of, cor of course, the, the colonialists came here and chopped that up to pieces, again, to divide people, divide people through race or through culture. And we're seeing that now in the riots on the streets. We're seeing that they're trying to incite a race war. But people are not buying it. And again, this is not about race. These are about the ideas and the concepts that the colonizers, okay, and I don't want to say all colonizers, but a very few of them that brought these, these methods of violence through, you know, basically through their institutions. And again, I'm talking about the system of capitalism, the systems, the political systems, how they basically hijacked an entire continent and they turned it into what it is now. And now we're basically at the breaking point. Because we tried their systems and they failed miserably for the majority of us. And again, I just want to, you know, I want to bring up this video. I'm not going to play the entire thing, but I want to show everyone what America and pretty much the world is all about. And if we don't change it, it's going to get worse. But again, these acts are necessary. Why? Because the current systems that are in place that were supposed to listen to the people have failed and now people have nowhere else to go to. So this is what's in store if we don't return to Turtle Island. Now there's no audio. I, I've uh, basically muted the audio, but I just want to show you some of the scenes happening in America right now. Um, again, I'm not going to sit here and say, yes, let's burn every car and every building. No, that's not the right thing to do. Uh, because then we're just as bad as those, uh, you know, those capitalist uh, colonialists who basically raised and uh, ransacked and, and basically raped and pillaged the indigenous people. But this is, this is basically, this is what's happening right now. This is a result of all the systems that have uh, been put in place that were supposed to help the people. 
Now the people have pretty much lost everything and when they lose everything, they lose it. All right, so I'm gonna minimize this. Um, I'm just gonna say, look, we, again, we're just, we're at a turning point in history. We need to get back to our roots. We need to get back to more simplistic times. Again, we have this wonderful technology that we can use. Um, we can use for, for, for good things. You know, to every everything that you have could be either used for good or for bad. And of course, yeah, uh, you know, we can use these things for the betterment of humanity and of course the planet. So again, guys, I, I recommend you to, you know, to check out Turtle Island. Uh, let's support our, our indigenous people who support the concept of returning back to Turtle Island because this is exactly the path we need to take. We need to reunite North America and essentially reunite the globe. And again, I'm not talking about the new world order and a global agenda. No, no, no. Uh, let's say, you know, let's say, let's talk about taking continents back, you know, at the same time. And then, uh, you know, eventually down the road, once we clean up our own affairs caused by, you know, the years, the mess that is, that, that is these systems that are, that are basically in place now that have caused, we need to clean these messes up, but we can only do that when we get together and we take back what is rightfully ours. So I just want to thank everybody for jumping on today, for listening. Please share, please subscribe, and more importantly, please unite.